The Lord be with you. Almighty God, we thank you that you are indeed uh, three in one, that you give us this nature and pattern for marriage. Three separate persons with each distinct roles within the Godhead, both in creation and salvation. And yet you are one in nature and substance, and you've been bound together in perfect unity for all eternity. Help us this morning as we uh, look at marriage, which reflects this amazing mystery, that we would indeed know not just marriage, but even the wonder and the practicality of who you are as Trinity. Uh, So I pray that uh, who you are would go before us and help us this day, that you would indeed equip us to live as your faithful servants, whatever context you have given us this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things that just I want to say by way of introduction, I think, in in approaching uh, the issue of gender roles, which is what we're looking at this week, I think there's three errors that I would want to avoid. One is uh, a faulty epistemology. That just means how do we know things? How do we know what we know? Or more importantly, where does the ultimate authority lie? There'll be lots of disagreement in the world today. There's probably lots of disagreement even in this room. But the important thing that where we start as Christians is not our own personal uh, feelings or the cultural standards of the day, but in fact God's word. So everything we want to discuss, the ultimate authority for it is found in in the Bible. So that's where we start in wrestling with, with some of this. I think it's really important because... Uh, gosh, I could go into, part of me wants to do a, a whole class next semester in the fall on trying to look at our culture today and how we've come to, uh, there's, I, I found a really helpful book I quote it all the time, but it's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that we live in a world today that is, he uses two Greek words that are, um, I find helpful, You're gonna, they're, they're Greek words, but mimesis and poiesis, a mimetic world is a world that has a certain givenness to it. It's constituted, it's like a reality that's simply there. And you have to align yourself to that reality. It's, uh, that was, for most of human civilization's history, that was the way the world was. Now we live in a poetic world, and the book traces kind of how we got there, but the, uh, a, a, a world where we basically construct our own reality. The world outside of us then has to conform to what we think of ourselves. And so that's a really important distinction, particularly when we come to gender, which today, I mean, the whole notion of gender is a poetic reality, um, something that we simply can construct for ourselves rather than a givenness. So those two words, mimesis and poiesis, I think are helpful terms of thinking about, okay, where... How are we approaching the world? How are we approaching uh, our relationships? Is there a givenness to the world around us that we need to align ourselves to? And if there is, then we are actually, as she says, missing out on something if we choose to just go against the reality, the way God has created it. So uh, a faulty authority, a faulty um, epistemology, how we know what we know. There's a second danger I want to avoid, and that is that you know, the position that she puts forward in this book and the one that I think I would hold to is a very old position. The more in vogue position today, which is egalitarianism, we'll define that in a bit, 
is something that is certainly just in the last 50 years, certainly in the last 100. And C.S. Lewis was famous for that term chronological snobbery, that there's this notion that human progress is inevitable, and therefore anything that's new is de facto better. And so we have kind of a disdain for looking back on really old things, really historic things. Hopefully that is something that um, is not a danger that that you have here in, in an Anglican tradition, but that is something that our world certainly looks at. This is, you know, if you look at some of the passages of Scripture that we're going to even glance at today, you know, you see the Bible talks about slavery. Well, Christians made arguments in favor of slavery. So uh, isn't the Bible regressive and outdated and we need to kind of move past some of these parts? And for many, they lump marriage, particularly the complementarian view, in that same category of Slavery. It talks about slaves and masters in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Um, so I, I think I just want to flag that right there and say let's beware of just saying because something's really old and there's by far 1,900 years of, uh, of weight behind the position that, that Kathy Keller is putting forward known as the complementarian one. A third uh, assumption, and this is probably the most practical and most important is that we live in a world that basically says, unless women are able to do everything that men can, and the, and the opposite, unless men can do everything that a woman can, then there's necessarily oppression. Until both can do absolutely everything that the other can do, then there's some sort of power struggle that's at play. And I think one of the things that she points out to really well, is she looks at the Trinity and is like, you know, these, two, these three persons of the Trinity are all different, they're distinct, Yet they're equal. They have different roles, different functions, but the, the truth of the scripture says that each of these persons are fully God, fully equal to the other. There's no subordination, no power uh, dynamic at play. Even when Jesus submits himself, as we'll see, he does it voluntarily of his own accord. And so I think that's important to recognize that it's just a false premise that unless, uh, I, I think we can think of, you know, the, she even mentions this, the like the civil rights movement where it's separate but equal. Some of the distinct but equal language sounds a bit like that, right? And she's rightly saying that, well, if we look at who God is and the Trinity, um, that is going to be a corrective against this kind of faulty assumption that until men can... And, of course, today, like, there's even technology that's becoming in existence so that we can try to make women and men have no distinction whatsoever, which is just where we, it's, it's pretty radical, but even down to the, the chromosomal level, I don't know kind of where the, the science and technology is on that, but uh, there, is, there are attempts certainly to erase all distinction between men and women. Um, so, and I, I think it's helpful that she, yeah, yeah. Like in the context of Ephesians, uh -huh. when Paul or Peter are writing trying to like transcend their local customs with what would be like the Christian principles by divine this? So because you've got like, yeah. different I mean each of these places speak in their different languages. That's right. right? So, yeah. So, like, well so yeah there's two elements to scripture. There's all and this is please today just absolutely interrupt me like that because this is gonna just need to be one of those classes. The the question is it, uh, was Paul writing, and the New Testament writers writing in a specific location that tries to transcend some of their values? Is that what you're saying? Right. 
Well, I mean, sometimes I'm trying to remember that like, when they write to Romans, yeah. that's such a different world than like Ephesus or, um, you know, yeah. Or even, you know, the, the uh, Israel and that world compared to the Greek world, the Roman world, very different cultures. And I think the, the brief answer to that is Scripture is primarily God's word, but he speaks through individual humans in specific contexts, right? And so uh, what I would say is the tricky thing is trying to find what exactly is God's word that, as you said, the, the principle that God has there. Uh, that transcends just a particular context and has something to say for everyone. Uh, one of the radical things that Paul does is that in, in the ancient Mediterranean world, women had no rights whatsoever. They were property of the husbands. So it was not crazy to say, uh, wives submit to your husbands. What was crazy was to say, husbands love your wives as Jesus loved the church. That was the controversial thing. So in many ways, the oppression that exists to women in that context, he says, actually, we do need to, to transcend that. But where we've gone on the opposite end of it in our context today, where we basically say there's no difference between men and women, um, and there's all sorts of nuance maybe, uh, even among Christians that I would, I would say this, but um, the, the dynamic that is, you know, can a woman submit to her husband, can a husband be a head uh, in, in the way that actually is not oppressive? Many people today would say, no, that can't exist. But I think what, what Keller, Kathy Keller says, and what I would say is, yes, there is a way when you have the Trinity as your model. And so we'll, we'll unpack that in a little bit. So does that make sense? Like the cultural context is, we're always going to be in a cultural context. God's word is going to always critique where we are, and I'd say where we are today is almost the flip of what, particularly when it came to women's rights in, in the ancient Near East. So uh, it was a good and helpful corrective to see that women are absolutely the uh, equal worth and dignity every bit as much because they bear the image of God as, as men do. So uh, let's, let's keep going. What Kathy says is that both, um, there, there's some who make too much of gender differences, there, and that's certainly true in the conservative places. I, I've been in the Christian church where there's been abuse, there's been all sorts of things that in the name of gender differences and gender roles, uh, particularly in the realm of like coercion, I mean, this is something that we'll see is not a biblical concept at all. So she's seen real oppression that's happened. Uh, what we would both say is that complementarianism necessarily does not uh, mean that the, just that that ideology doesn't mean that there's oppression but there's equally uh, rebellion that she's seen where those who say well there's no difference whatsoever as I've said like if, if God has made the world and men and women husbands and wives in a certain way then to just simply deny that is in fact a form of rebellion so I've already mentioned these two words already it's important to define them because she puts forward the second view here. Have you heard of egalitarianism and complementarianism? Anyone? No, but I don't know. Okay. I, did I include the terms on, like, defined there? Okay, great. So I'm just going to read these. Egalitarianism. So these are both, let me just start out. These are both, Christians can, can take either position. 
Kathy Keller and, and I would say that uh, I think the Bible teaches a complementarian view, and I'm going to try to outline what that is. But if, if you do believe there are egalitarians that can still be Christians, and that is okay, I just think that the Bible is, uh, presents more of a complementarian view. Again, this is why this is hopefully not my voice today. Uh, Molly is intentionally not here, which I wish she was here for this, but um, the, uh, the chapter was written by Tim's wife, Kathy, for the specific purposes of, of looking at this. But egalitarianism is the view that men and women are created with equal value and equal worth in the eyes of God, indeed in his very image, and that there are no role differences intended in the home, so think marriage, family, or in the church. Think, think ordination there. So uh, I'm just saying the church in general. Um, but we're not going to talk about the church aspect in this, in this class because um, that's a whole nother. There's all sorts of permutations, too, of these views. So some people um, can say, well, I believe that there are role differences in the home, but then there are no role differences in the church. You see where that all of a sudden... So there's all sorts of permutations of these views. The complementarian on the whole, is that the view that men, men and women are created, again, with equal value and worth in the eyes of God. Indeed, they're in his very image, but that they have a given, but they've been given different but complementary roles, hence the word complementarianism, not to give a compliment, but to complete uh, complementary roles in his creation, especially with the church and in the home. And so she deals not with the church component here, but in general uh, in, in the home and in, in marriage in particular. I think that's important because, gosh, we could talk so much about um, all, all the various things. I would firmly say that, I and mean, we have some folks who are not married here, and the important thing is that I don't think the Bible teaches a, um, you know, when you look at Adam and Eve as the first husband and wife, there are some who would say, well, because Adam is a man and Eve is a woman, what is said about them is true for all men and all women. I would say what you're seeing there, these complementary roles, is true for marriage in particular. So Adam and Eve as the first married couple is the, the example that's there. So does that make sense? Basically, like you shouldn't submit to a man just because you're a woman on the street. <laughs> does that make sense? I, like, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think what Paul is especially, especially talking about in Ephesians and what she's talking about, what I'm talking about, specifically within the context of marriage. All right, all of that was just introduction to her chapter. What she says is gender roles are going to be inevitable. What you think about how we relate to one another is, she says, is a, uh, probably going to be some kind of product uh, of your family of origin, your cultural norms that are around us, the observation that you have of friends' marriages, and even uh, the, the material that you read and watch on TV. So all of that kind of works subconsciously in our minds and in our hearts to form some view of how husbands and wives relate to one another. So I'm going to try to say husbands and wives from now on because I'm not just saying men and women in general. All right. So uh, turn, let's just go to the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5. We did this it's going to be worth going back to if you weren't here, but um, one of the things I want to do is summarize. I gave, I forget which class it was. Uh, I'll upload it online for this, but the, the overall structure of, of Ephesians 
5, starting in verse 15. Uh, But I want to draw specifically your attention to verse 21. This is often where um, the egalitarian position would look at. See, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's saying, see, everybody should submit to everyone. I don't think that that is a tenable position uh, because what we see right after that are three contexts of what submission actually looks like, right? So you see husbands and wives in verses 22 through 33. You then see in chapter 6, children and parents. And then you see, like I said, bond servants and masters. So it would be inconceivable if we are saying, well, everyone should submit to one another. Can you imagine Paul saying, all right, parents, submit to your children? There's no way that would make any sense. What he does is he gives three contexts of what submission looks like. Um, So that's just kind of by way of review. So the question for us is, is the submission between a husband and wife the same kind of like created reality that transcends all cultures and times like the parent reality? You know, parents should um, love their children, as Paul says, and children ought to obey their parents. That's a created reality. That's the mimetic reality. Uh, but, as I said earlier, you know, slaves and masters, that was, a, first of all, a very different kind of slavery than the Atlantic slave trade, where it was, in many ways, a racial, ethnic kind of slavery. And it also economically looked very different. We don't have time to go into all that. However, Paul speaks into that context, and I think lays, even in um, the commands he gives to, to slaves and masters, though he doesn't say we should not have slavery at all. What he does say is he lays the groundwork that will ultimately be the very thing that, um, uh, who is it, William, um, in the Atlantic slave trade and the, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, thank you, that he argues was what Paul was saying here lays the seeds for exactly what would end the slave trade um, and the institution of slavery. So um, the question for us is to see whether Husbands and wives, is this just a cultural thing, or is this something that has a created reality to it? And therefore, as she says, um, we actually, uh, I'll just read that in a second, we're going to miss out on something if we refuse God's design. So she gets to her main point, where she says, gender roles are, in fact, distinct and divinely ordered that were made for our good as husbands and wives. And the, these, these really um, buzzwords of headship and submission, which automatically everyone in here probably bristles at, she says the solution to getting over the bristling is to look at Jesus, who's both the example for both of those, headship and submission. So what she does is she looks at, okay, what did God do in the very beginning? What was the pattern? How did it go bad? And then what did Jesus do to kind of redeem the, the pattern and, and bring us back to the created good that was intentionally designed for husbands and wives. Well, uh, the, we've covered some of this, but if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve, and both of them, notice that male and female, he created them in his image, which means something profound, that in the most, everyone, every person, just by God's creation, of who he says they are, have infinite dignity and worth. 
Notice it's not in their capacity, it's not in their ability that gives them this worth. That's very important because we live in a society that says your identity is wrapped up in what you're able to do, what you're able to produce, which is why then if you believe that, you have to start obliterating gender distinctions all the way to the point of creating technology so that there can be birthing persons and all that garbage. Um, but the, so do you see how that's, that's related to if, if you are what you're able to do and your worth is tied to what you're able to do, then you're inevitably going to get to that, right? So it's amazing that God's worth and human, what, what God gives to humanity is something utterly apart from what their ability and what they perform um, does. He says, just by constituting them as God's image, both of them bear it. But most properly, it's the two of them together that bear the image of God. And that image was something that gave them worth, but it was, the image was also kind of a call and a command to do something. They were to, to represent God in the world. They were both, men and women, meant to rule creation. <laughs> Not just the men, women as well, meant to rule the created order. That was a really important point. Um, she says this on page 194. What all this means then, the fact that um, God, in the very first mention of God, humanity's creation, God created uh, gender, this means that our maleness and our femaleness is not something incidental to our humanness, but rather our genderness, cons- our gender constitutes the very essence of our humanness. From the very start, we are male and female. Every cell in our body is stamped with XX or XY. And in the postmodernity would completely reject all this. But if the postmodern view that gender is wholly a social construct were true, then we could follow whatever path that seemed good to us. If our gender, rather, is at the heart of our nature, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. She continues on looking at the creation that um, Adam and Eve were distinct and different, yet fully equal. Again, they had the image of God, the command to uh, be fruitful and multiply, which from the very surface level observation required their differences, as we talked about the last couple weeks with sex, biological differences that helped them live into this divine command to be fruitful, multiply, and rule over the earth. Yeah, so um, that's where we're going to get into headship, right? And so I think you, the fact that there is an order doesn't, uh, they're still of the same essence. They have a different order that is more about an authority and a headship, but we're going to talk about what that means in a second. Does that make sense? So there's not a, a difference in value. But there is a distinction, in the, and actually what you bring up, the entire New Testament, when it looks back on that, the very basis for the man being the head of the wife is rooted in the fact that he, he actually was created first. And that's what the New Testament authors draw upon. Not to say that they're unequal, but to say that they have a different uh, role. Uh, let's keep going. So... Adam, as you just said, had, he came first, so he was in some ways, although God created Eve, and if you remember that quote from Matthew Henry that I shared, I love this quote, um, it, Eve was created from the side of Adam, not to be trampled upon her by her feet, 
not so that Eve would rule upon over him, but rather that Adam would love her close to his heart and cherish her being close to his heart and to, um, to walk side by side, basically. It was the, I just butchered that quote, but whatever. Um, the, uh, Adam is, in some ways, the source of Eve, and therefore, actually, he's given the responsibility of naming her. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, he names his wife, and there is an authority that is implied there. Uh, particularly when you think about Adam naming all other parts of creation. So, despite this authority that you, you brought up, Liz, woman is by no means an inferior. And there's two things that we see, the reason that she's not inferior. First is this word ezer, the Hebrew word ezer. It means helper. Usually when we think of helper, that is just somebody... You know, it, it's not as if man was created and he could have done all these other things if he just had the time. That's not what helper means, but it's often how we think about helper. Uh, yeah, somebody to do my dirty work that I don't want. To, that's not. Yeah, it's used most predominantly in the Bible for God Himself. That's really important, and she brings up it's it's actually a term used for the military reinforcements that come in battle, that help win the battle. <laughs> it's like, without this help, without this reinforcement, you'd be lost. That's the sense of what woman is. There's an incompleteness, and that's what the suitable, it says a suitable helper, somebody who is actually, they're, they're both incomplete without the other, hence the whole complementary nature of it. Now, Genesis 3, really briefly, everything goes bad. They end up blaming and hiding and accusing one another. And so she says, rather than, and this whole chapter is called Embracing the, quote, Other, the capital O, Other. Rather than their otherness between husband and wife becoming a source of completion, it becomes an occasion for oppression and exploitation. The woman remains dependent and desirous of her husband, and his protection and love become a selfish lust and exploitation. And we see that play out in every marriage on some level. The, the curse of the fall, the, the sin that resides still in our hearts, uh, it will inevitably come out in this way. But Jesus has done something good to restore the, the goodness of the distinction in gender roles. All right. Two, chapter, or two places that she points to that are really, really helpful. Um, and both of them have to do, one's going to be about submission. One's going to be about headship. So in Philippians chapter 2, if, you want to just, if you're in Ephesians, just go over the next page to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I could spend a whole semester just on that passage, but we're going to look at two things. First, Jesus in the form of God, 
that doesn't mean that he was like kind of, uh, he wasn't really God, but he was like a Halloween costume appearing to be God. The, the actual Greek word was, it, this is one of the strong, in the New Testament scholarship, this is perhaps the strongest example in the Bible of Jesus being fully God. So he was fully God, but what did he do? He had the voluntary submission to do his father's will. He submitted himself to the father's will. And she says this is really important because, uh, first of all, the, she had, I'll just say a little bit about Kathy Keller. She says that she grew up in the 50s, and if it was possible to grow up in the 50s and be somebody who was kind of, uh, that men and women were completely equal, uh, she was one of them. Uh, she was not somebody who was entrenched in these very distinct gender roles. And in fact, what she says is that uh, when she first encountered these notions of headship and submission, she says it was, an int- she was intellectually and morally traumatic for her, as probably so many have experienced. But it was this passage in Philippians 2 that I just read that told her this about submission. Well, it told her one thing, that submission's never to be coerced because it was voluntary of Jesus, the Son, to the Father. But it told her that this, um, it was not an assault on the dignity and the divinity of God the Son, Jesus, to submit himself and assume the role of a servant. Do you see that in this passage? It is not an assault on the dignity of the Son of God to submit himself. In fact, this is what she goes on to say. The Son submits to the Father's headship with free, voluntary, joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. The Father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight, respect, and love. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. We are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity, loving, self-sacrificing authority, and loving, courageous submission. The Son takes a subordinate role. Notice he's not subordinate in his essence, in his nature, but he takes a subordinate role. And in that movement, he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. That's a profound thought because the way the world values greatness today is very different than what Jesus says is great. I said this the last time I preached. Jesus defines greatness by being on the cross, by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of utterly giving himself up. And she said, well, when I was able to wrap my mind around that, all of a sudden this word submission didn't feel nearly as oppressive as it felt before. But she goes on. She says the word headship also was something that was just one piece of the puzzle because the other side is the husband is the head and there's just as much damage that can happen from that. She says in John, John 13 was a similar passage. I won't go to it, but I'll explain it. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He shows them what it truly means to be a master, a Lord. And he says, to, to tr- and this is all throughout his teaching, his, his disciples, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? He says, the greatest among you is going to become a servant. And so what it means to be a head, according to the scriptures, and according to the complementarian view that that we're putting forward, is that the head is a servant leader, who submits, by the way, every bit as much as the woman submits to the husband, the husband submits 
to Jesus. Jesus is the pattern of what it looks like to be the head of the church. This is what Ephesians 5, this whole book that, that he's writing is just looking at Ephesians 5, which is why I was uh, bringing that up earlier. So if, man, if, if the husband is the head of the wife, and he is um, to love as Christ loved the church, and the wife is supposed to submit as the church submits to Christ, uh, you see Jesus is the pattern, but Jesus is also the pattern for submission. Not the way he submits to the church, but the way he submits within the Trinity. Does that make sense? Within the persons of the Trinity, Jesus is a submissive role. Every bit is equal, but submissive. And I think this, so Jesus is the pattern both for the head and for the person um, who is called to submit in marriage. So in Jesus, we see the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, if you're the husband, and Jesus in his sacrificial submission as the wife. That's from page 201. So, with five minutes left, how can we... uh, I've laid out, hopefully, a lot of the theory, but what does it practically look like? I want to just take a couple minutes. Um, She talks a lot about the very nature of uh, men and women are, 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 are different, I love this. Let me just draw your attention. Do y'all have the quote from 203 to 204? She, she is a great writer, those of you who read this. It's clearly in a different voice because it's, it's her own. But she goes, she's drawing from this book uh, that Carol Gilligan wrote called In a Different Voice. Uh, the New York Times said this book started a whole revolution that drew upon uh, social science to basically say that there are distinct differences between men and women. And um, these were some of what the conclusions were that in Kathy Keller's words. She says, Using all the qualifiers in the world, in general, as a whole, and across the spectrum, men have a gift of independence, an ascending, uh, or sorry, that's not ascending, but sending gift. Wait, 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 no. That's, that's wrong. Um, yeah, that should be not ascending, but sending. They look outward. They initiate. Uh, understand these traits can become either an alpha male individualism if the capacity is turned into an idol or a dependence if the calling is utterly rejected and the opposite embraced in rebellion. The first sin is hypermasculinity. The second sin is a rejection of masculinity. Do you all have that quote in front of you? Okay, just, I mean, we can marinate on this for a while, but I think this is really important. The fact that she's looking at, there's two ways you can go in basically not being obedient to the, the way God has created you according to your gender. So for men, especially what she's saying, is that men do have some sort of independence to them. They, they long to, to lead and to look outward. And sometimes that can become an oppressive sort of alpha male, you know, what is it called today? The um, uh, toxic masculinity. That's what I was thinking of, right? Think that. that there's one way, if you just um, reject God's design, you can go in one direction by becoming like an alpha male, hyper-masculine, or you can just deny it altogether and become completely dependent and not look to lead, and you can be passive. And the first sin is hyper-masculinity, the second is a rejection of masculinity itself. This is what she says now about women. 
using all the qualifiers in the world, on the whole and across the spectrum, women have a gift of interdependence, a receiving gift. They are inwardly perceptive. They nurture. Under sin, these traits can become either a clinging dependence, think stage five clinger, or, an, um, so if the uh, ideal of a attachment, yes, is turned into an idol, or uh, the other way you can go is, um, that is not right. Individualism. Individualism. An individualism, not end of ritualism. I did this all by speaking into it, sorry. So the individualism, if the calling is utterly rejected. So basically, women can, or wives can basically go to being completely dependent if they are um, taking that gift to an extreme of um, interdependence. Or if they reject who they are made to be, then they can completely go the opposite direction and uh, have, like the man, totally uh, independent, right? So I just want to go back to what Dan Allender said. I love the way he put it. All of this is on a spectrum. To, to speak in stereotypes, in some ways it's, it's helpful, but in other ways it's not. There's going to be a spectrum here, but the very fact of stereotypes is because there is something true about the nature of men and women. And so... Uh, it's important that, as, as we said, the, the sin of the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis is the same sin that plays out in our marriages. She says this, Men see women's need for interdependence as sheer dependence, and women see man's need for independence as pure ego. Husbands and wives grow distant from one another because they allow themselves to engage in constant daily drumbeat of thoughts of disdain for the gendered difference of their spouse. We really talked about this last time in Allender's book, about just how in the craziness of God that he would create two polar opposites in many ways. Uh, one looking for interdependence, one looking for independence, but on a spectrum, and their need to complement one another. And so what she talks about is actually it's in marriage that oftentimes the who God has made us to be uh, as husbands and who God has made us to be as wives is honed and sharpened and brought out. If you have the tendency, she talked about her husband, who, you know, you can be kind of on the one end, you can either be like hyper-masculine or like under-gender type, she talked about, like basically wanting to avoid um, being too dependent, basically, is what he would uh, probably just in his disposition be. And in marriage... In loving him, she basically caused him to lean more into his good, created desire to lead uh, in the, the sort of independent sort of way. And so each spouse sharpens one another, but it's at the cross that she draws the attention to that Jesus embraces the other. It's the very opposite of what we do so often in, in our sin within marriage, where we disdain the, the otherness of our spouse, and we disdain how God made them very different from us. So that is the, the model of where we ought to go when we are seeing our differences, is to actually honor them, and to see the good that's there, and in many ways call the spouse to, to live more into who God has made them to be. Uh, we have to say a couple practical things here. Uh, first, she says, if you're going to do this, 
you need to actually practice, find a safe place to practice submission and headship. And what she means is that sometimes there are spouses who are going to absolutely, you know, uh, more often than not, like a, a husband who's going to intentionally uh, lord his headship over a wife, and that's not a safe thing to do. If at the very like outset you you have differences of what headship means, that's not a safe thing to do. Um, or conversely, like if somebody has a complete, if your if the wife has a very different understanding of submission than the husband, it's just um, that can be an, an unsafe sort of thing. Secondly, she says, while ultimate responsibility and authority is given to the husband in marriage, I love this, this is so important, the Bible gives almost no details about how that is expressed in concrete behavior. That is so, so important because in America, in the idea of what it means to be masculine is very, you know, gender, or it, it's, it's very culturally specific in ways that in Africa and in other parts of the world it wouldn't be at all. And in fact, many people reject complementarianism because they reject a, a caricature. They reject a stereotype which says, oh, well, this means women can't work. Women aren't, they're just supposed to. And that's not, Proverbs 31 is a woman who actually has a, a, her own business and does all this, by the way. But um, the important thing that Keller notes is that the Bible is relatively silent on what it concretely looks like for um, the, the practice of, of the responsibility and authority and, and how it looks within husbands. So should wives work outside the home? Should husband ever do, husbands ever do laundry? Should they, um, you know, who's going to do the finances? Like the Bible doesn't say about what that authority looks like. Um, she talked about this, but I have an example from this past week. You know, it's like, uh, on Wednesdays, I push Eleanor for two hours on um, uh, basically between the nursery uh, for preschool over here and the nursery for, for choir. And as I was out, uh, I wasn't in my collar. I was pushing Eleanor in the stroller, and these two guys at construction were walking past me, and they were like, man, to be a stay-at-home dad. And I was like... Um, it was funny because I was listening to this chapter as I was walking and doing that. And, you know, in many ways, I get the benefit, thankfully, in, in this work environment, to have flexibility. My wife has a job. But each of us would say, uh, you know, we would hold to a complementarian view. And that doesn't preclude a spouse from being, a husband from being a child nurturer and taking care of children and a, and a wife working a job. Again, it goes back to the image of God that both of them have and part of the dignity of work that both are called to do. So there's a wonderfully maddening uh, ambiguity as to what it actually looks like. Uh, I will draw your attention to the very end, the appendix, that says, okay, well, how do decisions get actually made according to this? This was really helpful. She says four things. Uh, the husband's authority, <laughs> this is so bad, that should be the capital uh, S-O-N, sons over us, not the... S-U-N, son. The husband's authority, like Jesus' authority over us, is never used to please himself, but only uh, in the interests of his wife. That's really important. Secondly, a wife is never merely to be compliant, but is to use her resources to empower. Thirdly, a wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. You shouldn't give anyone unconditional obedience besides God himself. 
Uh, and fourthly, assuming the role of headship is done, uh, assuming the role of headship is only done for the purposes of ministering to your wife and family. And she gave this image of when they were trying to decide, do they go plant this church in New York City or do, do they stay in, um, in where they had a very nice, com- he had a nice comfortable job as a professor at a seminary. And he said, you know, well, what do you want to do? And, you know, his complementarianism is actually, you know, even the son who submits to the father in the Garden of Gethsemane lays out his concerns to the father. He lays it all out there. That submission is not just retaining it all in. So she, he, he asked her, what, what do you think we should do? And she recognized what he was doing. You are trying to get me to make this decision. And you're not actually leaning into who you're supposed to be as the head of our family. Now, this is what I think. It's going to be hard for me, but you have to make the decision. It's my responsibility to wrestle with God in that. That's what she says in the appendix. I, please read this chapter because I have not done it justice. Um, there are very, very, very few times. I don't think Molly and I have ever had to say, all right, I'm the head of our family. We're making this decision. I've never had to do that. But the whole reason this is given is at some points over big decisions, there are stalemates. And there needs to be a decision that needs to be made. And so uh, on the whole, for those sorts of things, it's not a, again, it's not a silent, both, both parties express what they think, but a decision has to go forward. So I, I'm not going to, I'll be late because this is important enough, but the questions that y'all have on this. What she noticed was after almost, I mean, probably decades of marriage, she could tell that he was skirting, like, remember, he was not the hyper-masculine alpha. His tendency, naturally, we all have different natural dispositions, was to be... He was, like, passive-aggressive. He was just trying to be more passive, in general. Uh, Yeah, I would say not, it was just passive. And really abdicate the role of trying to lead the whole thing was, well, what do you want to do? And and this, not because, that's a good question, right? But it was, she recognized it as an abdication. And so that she was... Just, she was, so that she was hyper-feminist, and she's like, yeah. okay, and I'll take the... Well, I think what she did was say, no, you're not going to put this decision on me. Um, I, and she told him what was hard, was that, you know, raising a family, uh, being a mom in New York City is going to be ch- tough. And I really, honestly, it's, it's challenging, but I'll do it. But it's at the end of the day, you have to make this call. If you feel God is calling our family to this, that is something that, that you need to do. And even though I feel hesitant about it, um, she could tell that he was trying to skirt his responsibility and leading in that way. Sorry, I meant Eve. So oh. Eve was hyper-feminist because she was like, because Adam didn't take the headship and say, no, God's not supposed to be from the tree. Well, that's the part of the curse. If you remember, your desire will be for your husband. What that actually means is your desire for the, the, the authority that God has given will be basically like envied. You will long for that and you will take it as much as you can, which is generally true. And I think that's where, um, again, that, yeah, that's, that's what that, that verse is indicating. I mean, I don't know if that's feminism as much as she didn't submit to God. Right. right? So yeah. Why, yeah. Why is she getting to different husband? Why submit to Jesus and then the husband? Husband submits to, sorry, I'm actually, 
did fill in the blank, like Jesus and then leaves the wife? Is that the second part? What's that? Submit to Jesus and to husband. Husband submit to Jesus. God. That's right. Both parties are submitting to Jesus. Yeah, right. Within the context of marriage, the submission part, wives are submitting to their husbands as Jesus submitted to the Father. Uh-huh. And, um, and the husbands are to be the head and submitting to Jesus because he's God. <laughs> as, uh, and he's supposed to be a servant head the way that Jesus showed us what true headship, true lordship looks like. It's a dying, giving up of yourself. It's a sacrificial love. So both parties are sacrificing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is great. Next week is our last one. And we're going to talk about singleness, but we're going to start with all the questions you have from what I've said this week or from any week before. But I encourage you because this really deserves a lot more time and discussion than I gave it. And so I'm intentionally going to start us off next time by looking um, at your questions and talking about the things that maybe you disagree with or found confusing in what I just said. But read the chapter, if you haven't, on um, embracing the other, which is what Kathy wrote and what I just tried to articulate. And then we'll end with singleness, and kind of, which will be a great way of looking at marriage is just a picture of something much grander than husbands and wives. So. Father, we thank you for this time. Bless us as we go forth. May all that we do and say bring honor to your name. Help us not to disdain your goodwill for our lives, but to give ourselves up as Jesus gave himself up for us, uh, for others. We can do that in his name and power, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.